Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this wild aisle writing cast. I have with me two very special guests, Amaya Tenchi and Torn Fletcher, also known as Agrippa. Thank you both for coming on on such short notice. We'll do our, our intros roundabouts here in a second. Uh, but first, this episode is going to be a kind of weird one. It is supposed to be part two to the crash course that came out before this, uh, but it's also going to be narrative voice potence or pretense, uh, but it's also going to be this weird roundtable thing. And so, you know, we're going to we're going to do our, do our best with that. All right. So uh, we'll start with uh, Agrippa, uh, since you are new to the podcast. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, you know, tell the tell the listeners uh, what you do, what you what you write and, and what you what you produce out there in the creative space. Uh, all right. Uh, so yeah, my name is Agrippa. Uh, real name is Torin. Um, I'm currently not exactly an author, I guess, author in progress. Um, my main work is, it's designed to be a trilogy. Uh, I guess you could probably call it a supernatural f- thriller with, uh, I guess dark fantasy elements. Um, still very much a work in progress. Uh, slowly, it's coming together. Um, besides that, uh, I also uh, am an illustrator as well. Um, I have had many uh, failed attempts to get various comics and graphic novels off the ground. Um, funny enough, actually, yeah, this current novel, its original form was a uh another one of those graphic novel attempts yeah all right amaya why don't you uh do a short intro uh for our listeners um i'm an author i have two books out dracula's mansion uh the the first one which is dracula's guest the third one should be out come december barring anything crazy that one will be called dracula's death um, eventually, if I'm able to get another tablet, I'd like to do a webcomic as well, but that's really, really on the back burner at this point. All you damn illustrators and artistic people. Uh, yeah, oh, by the <laughs> way, I, I, I want to uh, put out there, Dracula's Match is extremely good. I was extremely impressed with that. So uh, those of you out oh. there, go up and search up if you haven't grabbed Dracula's Guest, buy it and then read it so that you can read Dracula's Match. Though, to be honest, you could, if you're impatient, just get Dracula's Match because it was well enough written that I actually think even if I had read the first book, I really would have enjoyed it and I would not have been lost. So, uh, you know, don't be all intimidated by the fact that it's a series going on. Just get it. And then also, if you want to help uh torn out agrippa there he is very modest his uh, artistic and illustration skills are actually very excellent which is uh why he is one of the two artists that i'm hoping to actually commission work from so now i get to do my turn of shilling uh you can find out about that over at wildowlit.com there's a gigantic button for a uh, kickstarter campaign in which i'm raising funds to essentially commission real you know art covers because it you know it's expensive and i'm an impoverished author so help me out so you can help all of us out because we're trying to support each other in this uh let's say 
AI eating us world. Um, and I'm, I'm partly guilty of that if you see any of my pro promotional stuff. But I don't want to be guilty of it anymore that I have to. So go check that out. Uh, also, if you're an author and you're trying to develop your skills, you can also look at the Wild Isle style guide over in the editing section of my website. Uh, and there's a bunch of other stuff there as well. I've been producing more short stories and essays, putting audio tracks to those um, for your listening pleasure. Uh, and I've even updated the support section of my website to make it easier if you want to throw a couple dollars my way a month. Uh, with that out of the way, let's get into the topic for today, and that is style. So uh, let us go. We'll go in reverse order here. Uh, when we use the word style, because uh, that's really going to be the topic for today, uh, Amaya, what comes to mind? And then I'll throw that question over to you, Torin. So Amaya, what is, what is style to you? Style would be sort of extra artistic flourishes. So, you know, you have your basics, right? You have to be generally speaking, grammatically correct, everything spelled correctly. You need generally all the little bits of a narrative to be there. Um, I say generally, because some books and, you know, can get, <laughs> they can get kind of nuts. Style is the, the specific flavor from the author. So, for example, like An Invisible Man by Ralph Waldo Ellison. Listen very carefully to what I just said there. He wrote his book um, in such a way that it sort of feels a little bit like, like hearing a jazz piece, kind of exploring and meandering around. So if you read it out loud, you actually kind of have that very serious sense of that almost musical quality to it. Um, and you get different uh, stories that do various things. That, that was the first one that came to my mind because it just it stood out to me so much. Um, but a style is, is that, that personal touch that allows any reader to pick up a book and go, I'm pretty sure this is so-and-so. Torin, what do you think? <laughs> oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying, I don't know if that's enough, but... It's enough for us. Torin, what do you think? What do you think of style when I say that word comes to mind? Uh, actually, I more or less agree um, with Amaya. Um, one thing is like that immediately I think of is if I'm reading a particular author, like I think like one thing that's kind of, you know, if there is a lot of style present there, one thing that you kind of can immediately pick up is I'm trying, I guess you can kind of pick up what's important to them, you know, just bits of their worldview and how they see things even if like it's kind of detached from the story for example um i'm trying to think of like some specific examples that i particularly know i guess like say with uh thrillers for example since i read a lot of those uh for example like the author dean Koontz, like if you read any of his books you can kind of immediately just tell like who this guy is and i guess you know what uh you can kind of almost pick up his ideals just from the prose as kind of strange as that is to say i don't, I don't think it's all that strange what um that this sounds to me is very much like how i described um style when i taught it in literature and I, i've been doing a lot of thinking about it so um on the last podcast I, that i called a crash course i covered um, content essentially, um, and that's like the aspects like the genre, the plot typing, the setting, characterization, point of view, perspective, theme, all that kind of stuff. Um, but what you suggested there is that there is a different 
essentially list of elements that would constitute style. Um, and I actually do think I have um, something of that list, right? So in this case, uh, from both of you, what it sounds like is we are talking about um, the something like the diction and the syntax, maybe the sentence lengths, uh, variance of those lengths and complexities. Uh, we're talking about how much discursion, it's like the literal denotative language is used versus figurative language and reliance on connotation. We're also talking about music that Amaya brought up, that's like rhythm, meter, flow, uh, that has to do with efficiency, but it also has to do with qualities of sound. So using devices such as uh, alliterations, oscillants, consonants. This is like my, my favorite part of writing, if you can't tell. Uh, but I think also, uh, Torin, what you just brought up is that you can feel like the tone of the voice of the narrator uh, based on the style, right? So tone seems to be this um, derived attribute that we're getting off of it. So uh, if I if I look through my notes here, I actually have a definition um, that fits kind of well with that gigantic slew of uh, elements that I just read across. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so it's um, those components or features of a literary composition that have to do with the form of expression, the form of expression, rather than the content of the thought expressed. Um, that seems to be, let's say, the the idea that there is uh, what I would call the composition side and the content side um, to any literary work. Uh, to, to throw the question back out there, uh, how, how related or non-related do you guys think uh, comp the composition of a piece, right, that has to do with all the stylistic elements that we just uh, went over. How how related do you think those are to the content? Can it be entirely divorced? Does it have to be? Uh, is is it rather tight? Can it be? Can it be loose? Like, you know, can it be all four? Can it be entirely detached or very close or, um, like, you know, I guess does it have to be any which way? We'll start with. Um, I'll throw that over to you first, Torrin. We'll do like this kind of back and forth horseshoe thing. Uh, so, Torrin, yeah, do you think how closely related do you think style has to be with the content of the piece, if at all? That's honestly a good question because it's like I know that I've I've read examples where it's kind of you know there is no relation. I think it like hmm. I think ultimately it's better for it to be kind of it, it is better for there to be a link than not ultimately is, ultimately is what I would say. Yeah. Can I throw a question in there for you really quickly? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so what's interesting, I like the way that you worded there. You said it's better for there to be a link than not. Do you think that um when we're saying that there's it's better for there to be a link? That doesn't mean that it has to be a um, like a, a a correlational link. It could also be like an inverse relational link, right? So um, I'll, I'll qualify that and I'll let you let you answer. So that means uh, a work style can fit with the content, or it could actually contrast against it for a particular effect. But the idea is you want there to be um, some relationship whether that's uh, together or apart with the, with the, uh, the composition and with the content. Am, am I getting that right? Like there should be some relationship 
if but yeah yeah absolutely i kind of you know in, in visual arts terms i kind of use it like you know you can technically you can make a drawing that does not adhere to something like color theory but usually it's better if you do you know i guess if that makes sense like you know I, it's like you can get away with not doing it but generally i say it's something that you generally should be there yeah amaya what do you think about the relationship uh, this is a little bit tricky to talk about with regards to literature i think because for me this would be a lot more accessible than talking about film <laughs> um because you can talk about like directorial decisions and how those clash or don't clash with the particular genre or story that you're telling. Um, you think about literature here. Well, okay, so I know that, that my favorite author of all time, John Trevina or Ernest uh, G. Henham, depending on what part of his career we're talking about, he did to a certain extent change his style to fit with the genres that he was writing. When he was writing under his real name, Ernest Henham, he wrote gothic horror. And it was very sumptuous, very surreal, uh, not particularly grounded, shall we say, um, which actually I think is part of what made his gothic horror work so so, so well. Um, later on, when he was writing, I'm not sure what to call his later genre. It's it. Hmm. It, it was it was still fairly surreal. Um, it had fairy-esque elements. Man, actually, I'm going to have a really hard time even discussing this. Let me just say that the style that he chose at that point was, it still had the surreality, so there was still that element that was, you know, his, um, and that kind of um, sumptuous descriptions, but he allowed it to be more airy. I don't know how to explain that a little bit better. And he, he allowed for a better sense of groundedness as contrast to the fantastic elements that he later on included. So that to me looks like a very conscious decision on his part. So he still kept his own style, but he adapted it to work with the genre change. And that would, that would make sense um, because there I mean, I actually really believe there has to be that relationship, and you can, um, you can extra facilitate the content you're going for. Um, you know, Torin mentioned color theory, right? So sometimes you want complementary colors, but sometimes you want contrasting colors. And and the thing is, it's not totally arbitrary what counts as a complementary mm -hmm. or contrasting color, right? Like there are. There's certain, you know, if you want to highlight something, you can hit a contrast with the uh, with the style. But if you wanted it to, uh, let's say, be suppressed, if you will, or muted, you would make the style, let's say, le less contrasting and more what is uh, expected. Or if you wanted to exaggerate and enhance the effect, the, the one of the works that comes to mind for me that I brought up before is uh, the Last Unicorn. For those of you who have not read it, it is. Uh, actually fantastic. I was shocked at how impressed I was with that book. But the style yeah. of that the book is written in, um, I actually don't think you could get the same book if you changed the style. I, I, I don't think it would do the same thing, um, which does suggest that maybe, uh, I'll throw it back, back to you, Maya. Do you think there might be some form of emergent property that comes out of that relationship between 
content and composition. That means that the that the style never really exists perfectly in a vacuum, right? That when we when we try to write with a particular narrative voice, that inevitably produces um, because it because the the voice has to be you know, in a story, right? Like it doesn't exist on its own outside from the, the content, but that it produces something emergent. Um, yeah. Does that, does that sound like that holds water to you? Yes. I, I would say that you probably cannot have a voice without speaking as it were, right. Without, without it existing in a medium of some sort. Um, I guess maybe you could say without it being incarnate in some way. Yeah. And as you say, the, the last unicorn is actually, a, it's a, an amazing book. It should be required in schools, but it won't be. Uh, just a fantastic, fantastic story. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, I don't and, know if you have now... Go ahead, sorry. Uh, yeah, it's all right. We're going we're gonna to have these little bumps uh, with the three of us. But um, so what I wouldn't... What I want to get into from here um, are questions about the importance of um, stylistic considerations, developing one's style. Um, this is going to seem a little tangential, but I think it won't be once we, we dive into it. So um, I'm sure, and actually I'm not sure about this, so I'll ask you guys, have you witnessed what I'm about to describe? And that is a kind of seeding, like a surrendering of the importance or the um, valuing, valuing is a better word. So a surrendering or seeding of the valuing of style when it comes to writing our literature over to people who um, that we shouldn't be giving it to. So what I'm thinking of is people who claim to write, um, you know, literary fiction who are celebrated in academia um, that I saw quite a lot of when I was in grad school. Um, I find that the idea that we should focus on making or focus on the stylistic elements of our prose, um, oftentimes to be looks looked at as stuffy, you know, like oh, like we like that's what you know, those pretentious prats over in the academy who can't write well and don't and write things that no one wants to read do. So we're going to avoid that. Um, I think that's a mistake, but I also don't know that my my seeing that being prevalent uh in and amongst particular writing communities is real like it might just be i'm in a li weird little um corner of the internet um i don't know so what do you guys what's your experience i'll start with torrent first um torrent have you seen that like a a turning the nose up at uh really focusing on style as opposed to just focusing on uh the content or am i just seeing things I haven't noticed the attitude now. Granted, I don't. I haven't looked very deep into these, but I have noticed, I guess, examples of what you're saying in, you know, these books in like the pages themselves. Where I won't name these, but I have read several, you know, books that were recently published that, you know, they were most of them were in the fantasy genre. But I did notice that just the prose and everything was very, um, I guess, just. There was no flourish to it. It was almost kind of written like a Wikipedia article, you know, and because of that, uh, I felt it kind of made these fantastic elements that, you know, these like fantastic worlds just completely, it just, it didn't do them any justice, I suppose. So is that what you're kind of talking about? Just this kind of like forsaking of just writing style, I suppose. 
yes, that's precisely actually <laughs> what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll ask you a quick follow-up question, then we'll move. We'll, we'll let my answer as well. Um, so I guess the the question that came to my mind is, um, what do you think is is happening? to you as a reader. So you're reading, like we'll say you're reading a fantasy story or it could be science fiction, whatever it is. Um, and the prose is not speaking to you. There's something you said, it's like a Wikipedia article as opposed to, uh, as opposed to something that does have an effect on you. Like if you really had to dig down and describe the difference between reading, um, let's say a, a story where the prose facilitates the delivery of the content versus the prose is almost like in the way. Uh, you know what? What's what's the difference in your experience, as best as you can describe it? I think, like ultimately, it comes down to is that I mean, it's not. I, I don't want to say that I don't get immersed because I guess you know whatever. I'm I'm like a heavy visualizer, so either way, I can kind of end up seeing the story play out. But I do kind of. I do feel that, yeah, like the stylistic prose, like that is very critical for immersion. I feel at least to some extent. Another thing I feel too is that even if there's like clunky stylistic prose that, you know, as you said, like gets in the way, I at least can sense that there's passion about it, you know, in it that the author, like, you know, they're very, they're invested in what they're doing. You know, if, if there is no pro, you know, no style to speak of and everything is just kind of written in this very neutral, almost, I guess, objective way. I just, I kind of, you know, I guess maybe this is entirely fair, fair to say, but I kind of feel like the writer doesn't actually really care about what's going on sometimes. That's kind of what I take away from that. Amaya, how about you? So if we remember the first question is, uh, do you, do you see the same phenomenon um, where there is a, let's say, lack of concern for style. And then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll answer that one first, and then we can see if the follow-up is, is relevant. But go ahead. A lack of <clears throat> concern about style. Um, OK, so I mean, I think I've mentioned this, maybe not in your podcast, but in, in general. Uh, I, I don't read uh, modern stuff. I just, I generally speaking, can't stand it. Um, I know that for my creative writing courses, there was definitely an emphasis on, I don't want to say having no style, that's not quite true, but in some sense, removing as much of it as possible, because uh, there was like, the impression that I had was a lot of these professors have this idea that style is somehow a quirk of genre, i.e., and of course, writing genre is, you know, terrible, as you know, it's a sin that you should never commit because you're trying to make money or appeal to the masses or whatever. Um, <clears throat> I think to a certain extent, though, this disinterest or this um, distaste for um, heavy stylistic elements, it, it almost feels like it's the same sort of heavy materialist kind of push that you get even just in the visual arts, right? I mean, to a certain extent, it's almost a push towards ugliness, right? We don't want little extra flourishes. We don't want that little unnecessary you know, little curl the cue on the end of your signature there, things like that. Um, it needs to be ugly, because if, quote-unquote, regular people appreciate it, then there's something wrong with you. Um, yeah, there's some sort of, like, elitist element to it. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's my suspicion about 
what the deal is. That's super interesting. And here's why that's super interesting to me. So you came at it from the academic side, which by the way, I, I witnessed uh, that quite a bit where there's this push toward a kind of um, neutralizing minim uh, minimalism, right? To strip <laughs> away all the spirit, all the soul, uh, which the, the interesting thing about that though is that ties in right to what Torn was saying. So Torn just brought up that, um, and I think uh, probably what Torn was seeing is actually more away from the academic side. So we're seeing this on both ends of the spectrum. There are, there's a kind of disdain for um, the art form, perhaps for different reasons. Um, and maybe this is sort of like the, um, this falls along the spectrum of art versus escapism and propaganda. So uh, for those of you guys who don't know, or maybe the listeners who haven't seen it, I uh, had a conversation with Nathan Cumberledge, who comes on the podcast quite frequently, and we built out this spectrum where on one end, you have raw escapism, where there is no uh, fundamental, let's say, truth or moral or lesson or theme to the work. It's all um, titillation. It's all uh, like mere base impulse uh gratification. But then on the opposite end, you had this idea with propaganda where the actual art is stripped out and the idea, the solution, the theme um, is an answer to a question that is prefabricated, right? There's no human exploration. There's no, and if there's no exploration, that means uh, it's divorced in a sense from the person's re relationship with reality. It's like a prepackaged answer. And that really reminds me of this situation where on one side, uh, with the literary side, we have this idea where let's obliterate all of the, we could almost call it the the natural component. What I mean by nature is those things that pull the feelings up out of us, that make us care, that uh, make us interested, which is why someone would bother to read it because it becomes relevant to our lives. And on the other end, with the escapist end, um, it's as if the person doesn't care about uh, the 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 potential profundity or the any deeper experience. Right? You know, it's like the guy who just wants to have his basic sensory pleasures met, and like if that's all he gets, that's all he gets. He doesn't really care about any of that deeper stuff. Um, now, where was I, where was I going with all that? Um, you mentioned, now see, now, now I, I've lost it. You guys want to jump in while I recollect myself? Is anyone? The, well, okay, so if you we want to talk about it from the academic sense of we're, we're like 100% materialists to a certain extent. We have completely divorced, I guess you want to say, the, let's say, the body or the, the, the world from like the spiritual or the emotional or the mind space, if you want to put it that way. And that might be why you're seeing this sort of either or, right? Because certainly with um, the, the literary elitists, you know, basically despising genre for being genre because, like, the masses might appreciate it or whatever. Um, they refused, for example, as far as I can tell, to accept that you could have genre with literary value, 
right? You could argue Dune or Lord of the Rings or, you know, there's a number of genre books that would, you know, qualify for that. Um, and that for it to be literature, you basically almost cannot enjoy it, <laughs> right? Because it may be as far divorced as possible from your disgusting, you know, meat sack self. Um, so, and like I said, I think that's just a symptom of our society as it current, like the, the trend in the general culture, because I don't think this was a, um, an issue back in like the, the classical periods, for example. I mean, they, they would, I think, view, um, and this is why everything was made to be beautiful, etc., right? That you should use your senses and your physicalness in order to kind of like look higher at the, like the above space, but also that there, that there's something wrong per se with you having the physical senses, like having eyes and enjoying beauty and things like that. I don't know if that's well phrased or not. I mean, I certainly think it is, but before I jabber on Torrent, you want to jump in? Oh, um, I was actually going to, uh, say I almost kind of like, I know like, Obviously, this this all originated, you know, from just the academic circles. But I wonder, like, how much of what we see, too, with this is kind of, like, not simply just driven by, I guess, like, opportunism as well. I mean, like, because a lot of, like, these books where I saw this were these kind of new up-and-coming authors. And I, I do wonder, like, you know, if there's this element where a lot of these people just simply never learned, you know, to write uh, beautiful prose or they're not well-read or you know, whatever, and they simply just uh, kind of almost go along with what, you know, these academics push just because it benefits them too, you know. You can actually, you can see similar stuff like this in visual art, you know, where there's this kind of uh, dumbing down of the skill level that a lot of these people that are going in there kind of just, you know, um, gleefully go along with because it benefits them as well. Yeah, I think I could tie this together in an interesting way. So I can't remember the, the guy's name. Um, he did an interview with uh, Jordan Peterson. He talked. He was in literature, and he did. He, he was really into critical applying critical theory to different literary works, and he talked about it being like a taking of pleasure in the revenge against people who he could never match. Right. So you have all the greats of history, um, and. I actually think that uh, that brings both of these sides together, right? So what we really have here are, you know, the people in academia and in, in, in the modern sense have a desire, I actually know this is the case, they have a desire to feel uh, superior of those people who came in the, from the, the past who actually they're not as good at, they, they, they can't recreate the great works. Um, and then we have the up and up and comers, right? Um, this is true in the commercial side. Uh, I would even argue this is probably true on the indie side a lot as well, because that's where the commercial is expanding into. Um, is that there is a disdain for the cultivation of skill um, because mm -hmm. it's easier to be like you know to scorn, like look down your nose and say like, oh, well, that's just pretentious prattle. Why do I, uh, you know, why do I care about you know, implementing some form of uh, alliteration or, you know, uh, why do I care about figurative language? Like, why do I have to use all these freaking similes and metaphors uh, for? I could just write it and, and you know. I, so do you think that's what this is? Is this like revenge against, um, let's say, a revenge against the art form 
and the art form essentially being uh, some type of, I guess I, guess I should mention what I think an art, an art form is. Um, and I think, Amaya, you'll probably want to speak to this. So I think that art is when we as human beings, we take something out of nature and we uh, we we make we humanize it in such a way. Why do I use the word humanize? We make it in relation to us, and in the in a way that answers something about our relationship with the world. Um, and if you're religious, just instead of putting the world, just put God there, um, and that's what art would be, right? So if I said that in a religious sense, you're taking something from a state of nature and you're you're bringing it into relationship to to us as we are. Uh, in, in as far as we can be in relationship with God, uh, that might be a little bit too much. But um, what do you what do you is that an okay way of conceptualizing art? And are these people taking revenge at their inability to uh, basically relate to God? What do you think, Amaya? Uh, I think yeah, that would be what you would consider maybe um, like sacred art, if you want to put it that like like art has de degrees, right? all the way down to essentially what amounts to porn, which is like, you know, just 100% titillation with absolutely no point, you know? Um, but that to a certain extent, because uh, I think that generally speaking, yeah, that, that would be the definition I would go with. Um, but there is almost also an element, um, not just of including or condensing, let's say, uh, a bunch of meaning into sort of a, a singular package, right? This little kind of almost a pill form. Um, that certainly the higher higher art, you know, would have an element of inspiration, right? Where someone looks at it and they go, wow, that it's amazing that that's even possible for someone to create. And in that sense, potentially, this, you know, to get to what Agrippa was talking about, because by the way, the dumbing down of art, <laughs> that, that's been going on for a while. That's not a new thing. Um, there is a certain element, because uh, I mean, when I was younger and I was trying to do um, art, et cetera, I, I more or less was, you know, punished, shall we say, for attempting to do well. We'll put it that way. When, when I was being taught painting, I, for example, uh, in my course, we ended up going to an art museum, and in that one, there was a huge canvas. It must have been about 13 feet by, like, 10 feet. And the whole canvas had been painted um, some shade of, like, neutral blue. On the top of the canvas, there was a large white blotch where you can still see the brush strokes and you can actually see through the paint to the blue underneath. And then below that was a darker blue blotch. And uh, I was 13 at the time and I told my art teacher, like, I, I could paint that. And she turned around and she said, no, you couldn't. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, or, you know, when she had us doing art, I, I was trying to paint things. We had, she was telling me, oh, I'm not allowed to paint a picture of an actual thing. It has to be of a painting of nothing. I'm like, all right. So, there was an active, I would say, attempt at degrading even the concept of art or beauty, you know, and yeah, I think there is an element of, of the envy because, you know, it's, it's hard to be, <laughs> you know, like one of those Renaissance painters or, you know, to be Ruben or even, you know, anybody. Um, what is this like that Kurt Vonnegut uh, short that I had mentioned the other day, the name of which I can never remember. Yeah, that's what I would say. It's probably envy to a certain extent. And uh, someone feeling defeated 
by the fact that they don't think they'd measure up. And rather than attempting to measure up or saying, well, thank goodness somebody could make it, they, they go, nah, they, I'll tear it all down. I, Harrison Bergeron, that's the short. I can remember the name of that thing. Torin, you want to jump in on that? or? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, actually, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think it really, there is this kind of this revenge of the untalented aspect to this that I think really, it, it, it more or less uh, is almost kind of a symbiotic relationship with these, you know, academia types that are pushing this, I think. And you, I think you really like, you can kind of see this everywhere in popular culture where, you know, no, just everywhere you look, there's been no significant works of art really in any sector, you know, and I think there, it's because there's kind of this unspoken rule that nobody is allowed to do anything interesting, you know, and I think like, I, I don't necessarily know that this is all of, you know, the reasoning, but I do think some of like the kind of like the woke orthodoxy that's enforced, like the reason, part of the reason why some of these rules are so flexible, I think is specifically so they can be used to kind of stifle, you know, these creative expressions that would potentially make people feel inadequate. Yeah. Amaya, do you want to, did you want to jump in there too? No, it's okay. I always, uh, I get over eager. <laughs> I'd much rather have you over eager here on the Wild Isle podcast than a, what's the opposite of an eager beaver? Um, a depressed platypus? What's a better <laughs> word than depressed? Um, before, before we go on, I wanted to bring something up um, before we run out of time that was brought up to me by Matt Dawson, who's been on the show a couple times, and I talked to Timo uh, Burnham. So. Uh, we're all in the indie writing space. We kind of know each other. Uh, and the thing we talked about, I talked about with, uh, with Timbo that Matt brought up the subject was an underserved audience. Um, and I wanted to run this idea past you guys because I think there might be, I don't know that this is going to connect back into what we just talked about, but I, I suspect it and it will. So we talked about how, particularly with young men, you can't kind of can't get them to read. Uh, they're more attracted to visual medium, and it just liter like literature can't compete. Um, and there has been a push and a, a valiant push. I, I respect it because I think, uh, you know, our, we want our young people to be literate, and we don't want half of our young people, therefore, to be you know illiterate. Like you can kind of get teenage girls and and women to read in general, particularly fiction, trying to get young men difficult. Uh, but the push has been, I think, um, to fixate on like action-packed content and rather, uh, but I, I think that's actually the wrong aim. And I, I'm going to pitch this idea. I think that actually uh, one of the reasons why we're seeing a big chunk, particularly would say of, of young men who are disinterested in reading is because we've, we've progressively lost um, interest in stylistic writing. Why do I think that? Well, when we, when we talked about style earlier and composition, uh, Torn brought up, it makes you feel something. And, uh, you know, Amaya, you brought up, it, it makes you kind of feel something even down to a level, like a spiritual level. And it, it, it kind of, 
there's a little bit of uh, some, something deeper there that gets ev evoked out of you, right? I'm going to use that word evocative here. Um, and I think actually, if we think about what young men like, visual mediums, well, what's the closest thing to that in literature? That's going to be imagery, fun most fundamentally. Um, and imagery in literature isn't just the visual, but it's also the you know uh, what you describe in terms of smell and sound and 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 feeling and taste, um, and I actually think you only get proper evocation of emotion via imagery from a reader if you can stylistically employ it. Right, like you have to be able to use figures of speech. You have to be able to use qualities of sound. Um, we know uh, we mentioned music and 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 how certain pieces can almost sound jazzy. Uh, I think, Amaya, you brought that up. Well, if we know some, something about music is that um, I kind of buy into this a little bit. Like music is a rather pure art form because it, it, it does evoke feelings in you without having to secondarily evoke those feelings through another image. So like I, you can play a, a tone that sounds sad, even though that tone sounds like nothing that a sound a sad thing ever makes. It's like this weird thing where like it just you hear it and it's like that's sadness. It's like why is it sadness? I don't know, but it is. And everyone agrees and we all feel it or you know joy or levity or um you know you can make music with tension. And I think style and and stylistic considerations um which I'll give some examples of here in a bit are necessary in order to provide that imagery, to provide that music within the prose that evokes those feelings that would then draw in. I'm sure it would draw everybody more in to reading, to be honest, because right now the mass, mass of readers for fiction is like uh, women 40 and up, and they're reading mostly romance novels, which um, I don't count yeah. as art, uh, right? So, uh, <laughs> so uh, which, one, which one of you wants to weigh in on my proposition there, and I'll, I'll summarize it in one sentence, is that actually you have to have really good style in order to appeal to very visually uh, oriented readers. What do you think of that? I 100% agree. Why do you agree, Torin, the illustrator? I think you have some unique insights on this. Uh, well, it's pretty much like it, it's that much. It's basically style is a visualization tool. You know, like I said, I think I mentioned earlier, like it, it really can, at least if for the visual, visually minded reader, it can, you know, make or break the, the uh, immersion that much, you know, um, some of that, you know, some of them like me, I want to kind of take in as much as I can and do my best to actually place myself in there, you know, and to do that, there has to be, there has to be a lot of style, you know, there pretty much there can't be just this neutral kind of uninvolved, you know, very uh, concise prose, I suppose. Amaya? Um, I find the idea very interesting. I don't know necessarily how well it's going to work in practice, but something that I think about is, you know, once upon a time, Plenty of men were reading. Uh, now, it may have always been the case that men, maybe by and large, tended to read less. I could be wrong about that. Um, but 
you know, like all the, like the more to Arthur was not written, for example, for 40 year old women, you know, back in the day. <laughs> um, so I do wonder if on the one hand, maybe there's a stylistic as you know, uh, reason why young men or men in general are not reading, or if it's possible there that it's just, again, we're not telling the kinds of stories that men like to read. Cause I mean, it's fairly clear that like, um, Oh, goodness. Come on, brain. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author or the main character from this freaking series anymore. <laughs> oh, no! no. Um, <laughs> uh, man. Well, my brain's not working, but there are definitely series that exist out there that are, are basically male readers, and they tend to read them. Um, Clive Klessler. There we go. Right. Um, very few, probably four-year-old women are reading his works. Um, I don't know what the split would be on Stephen King. I, it seems like Stephen King is certainly very popular amongst male readers. Um, I think Michael Crichton might also be. So, so maybe, maybe attacking it from both points of view would be the way to get there. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree. There would need to be some confluence. Um, if you're, writing highly stylistic um, stories that focus on relationships, that's going to necessarily, you know, lean more away from a particularly young male audience. And if these are adventure stories, if these are, you know, coming of age heroes journeys, if they are um, anything of that sort, that that's going to appeal. But I, I have some examples I wanted to, to read through. Um, hopefully it won't take me too long. And I think they, do demonstrate that style does a lot. This first one's going to be a bit long, and, and you know who knows, maybe this is all we'll have time for. Um, but I want, and, and you'll probably have heard it. Uh, this is the poem Jabberwocky uh, by mm. Lewis Carroll. It's, or not Lewis Carroll, sorry, Lewis Carroll. Um, so I'm going to read it through. For you listeners who have not heard this, it's, uh, it's awesome. This is one of my favorite little poems. And you're about to see why, because I think it demonstrates what something you can do with style when there's almost almost a void of content behind it. Uh, not exactly. It's the wrong way to say that. But I'm, without further ado, I'm going to read this poem, Jabberwocky. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All miss me were the burrow groves, and the momraths outgrabe." Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the fruminous bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the maxime foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. And as in oofish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tuggly wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumping back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjoyous day, kaloo, kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy tobes did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mismi were the borough groves, and the momraths outgrabe. All right. Um, have uh, have either of you not heard that poem before? 
I, I have definitely heard it. <laughs> As have I. Okay. Um, so, so unfortunately, I can't. I, I, I can't be like, okay, what does this mean? Um, the. In terms of before I just jabber on. Um, in terms of style, do either you want to comment on how? What you think I might be going for? What you might just see in it? If who cares what I'm thinking? Um, in terms of style and how that poem is able to actually use essentially not content. Those aren't a lot of those are not content elements. They're like they're purely sounds essentially, like music, in order to um, communicate the little narrative poem. Uh, so, so someone throw something at me about Jabberwocky. How, at least, yeah, somebody. I'll go if Agrippa doesn't want to go. Go uh, Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, the, the poem, of course, does... Um, I don't want to say ape, right? Because in this sense, this is very intentional um, and very thought out. But let's say is definitely meant to evoke, if we're going to use that word, a sense of some of those um, you know, classic poems we've had in literature going all the way back. Um, obviously, it still has the, the meter and everything else to it. All of the words, even though they're nonsense, are placed in such a way that you know at least the function of the word. Like, you know that the momraths, whatever those are, are some sort of noun, and they're almost undoubtedly some sort of animal or creature or beast. <laughs> you know, out grave, they're, they're doing whatever that means. Um, and so, yeah, it allows you to you can still piece together quite a bit of the meaning uh, in the sense of the, in the purely abstract, right? Because you can't know for an absolute fact what it is that they're doing. Um, from the structure of it, and if you look at, think about other poems, right? Because this is kind of what I think is being included here. Um, then you have a sense that what that's establishing is sort of a sense of tranquility and peace. So. I think the reason that this poem works actually is because it exists within a larger, I guess, library, if you will, of poetry, which is very like it, that allows you to sort of, with the low resolution, sort of place on to the various bits of it what is being communicated. But yeah, in, in, a, in a purely, in, in the purely abstract, most minimal, most low resolution possible, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Torin, do you have anything, any any opinions on Jabberwocky? Uh, most, of, most of mine really kind of a just, again, pertains to kind of just a, a more uh, base sense where I, I just feel like the, you know, the names and the prose alone kind of accomplished, you know, in instilling kind of this, I guess, like, I suppose, otherworldly kind of sense in the reader, you know, it kind of just straight from the... Uh, from the start, it kind of succeeds in doing this, you know, again, just with its use of uh, descriptors and whatnot. You know, um, I probably kind of look into these things a bit different from a, a literary-minded person, you know, but it does, it, it conjures up these very fantastical images, you know, just uh, basically with actual very little... Um, obviously there's not really an excess of uh, descriptors color is not mentioned texture is not mentioned much but you know i'm still able to kind of get a very clear picture from this poem 
Yeah, I have the advantage of I have it up in front of me. Um and I think a lot of the the quality of the picture comes from the actually the the sound. Um Mm-hmm. Now, there's definitely a lot of assistance, like Maya mentioned, with the placement, because that helps you understand, you know, what the function of each nonsense word is. But, um, you know, if I say the like slithy, right, that makes you think of like anything that they that, that you get that S sound. It makes me think of a snake. It makes me think of something slithery. It makes me think of uh, maybe something mossy, right? Um, there are a bunch of associations, those are connotations that are, arrive out of that that set the tone of the poem immediately, right? Uh, now, I know that there is a way to translate a bunch of these words um, because Lewis Carroll wrote one. Um, I can't remember, and I didn't prepare it because I'm a fool, but um, the actual, <laughs> the actual like, you know, Twas Brilliant and the Slithy Toes, it's actually something really silly, like some animal walking around a fountain or something like that in, like, the yard. Uh, but that's not the point, the function um, the function here of that the the first stanza and last stanza where it repeats itself is to set the the tome or tome tone with an n uh, of it being kind of dark, right? Um, because it, right when it goes into the bear, beware the jabberwock. But there's a bunch of words like vorpal sword. Um, I bet a bunch of people listening to this think that that's a word, vorpal. It's not a word. But it, where it you is- heard that was oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just saying it is now, thanks to D and D. I think. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, well, actually, I think the. Yeah, it wasn't before. I think they changed it to vor- vorporal, like vorporal sword. They added a couple, so- like a syllable to it or something. But yeah, that's what I was about to point out. Is in D and D, you all think that that this is where that came from, uh, you illiterate bastard. So go read. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but vorpal works because, like, the V. I don't know what it is, but there's something about the V sound. Uh, I don't know, it reminds me of like vivisection. Um, it, it, there's, some, there's something sharp about it. So when you say the sword is a vorpal sword, like my brain immediately says it's sharp. Uh, even if uh, when I first encountered uh, the D&D iteration of it, vorpal sword, I kind of understood that like it was an intensification of the uh, the function of the, the cutting. Um, but there's other ones too, like uh, the lump thing, right? That's obviously like, uh, it's hard to describe, but you, the lump, like it's, you're, you're, it's, it's got this, um, what's the right word? Galloping to it. Galloping is the best way I can, I can think of it. Now you could think of like, he went galumping back, or he went galumping back. Obviously, we have the context, so it's positive. Um, but either way, it serves to have that. Um, I, I compare it to like anapestic meter. Um, so if you read a lot of post poems, they use anapestic meter, and they have this kind of quickening, um, rapid rhythm to them. Um, fruminous, right? The fruminous bandersnatch. By the way, if you saw the uh, Black Mirror movie Bandersnatch, that's where they got this name too. Um Yep. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of inspirations here. Um, but yeah, fruminous makes me think of like froth, foaming at the mouth, uh, ferocious, fierce. Um, there's something about the f. And like, even if you pay attention to what it does to your mouth when you do that fr sound, you if you look at yourself in the mirror, you're snarling to to make that to make that noise. Why am I bringing up all of that? Well, I'm bringing up all of that because I think actually 
every little tiny thing like that um, changes the way that you connect in with the uh, thing that you're reading. In this case, it was Jabberwocky. Um, there, there are, there's another example. I, I've read it a bunch of times on the, the podcast, so I won't read the whole thing because it's kind of long. Um, let's see. Yeah, I'll read just this, this bit of it, and you guys can tell me if you recognize it. Um, the listeners should certainly recognize it, but I think it's important to point this out. Along the crooked, unpaved streets with their heaps of refuse and sloppy puddles, drunken roisterers staggered roaring. Steel glinted in the shadows where wolf preyed on wolf, and from the darkness rose the shrill laughter of women and the sounds of scuffings and strugglings. And I could go on because there's more and more and more of that. But um, but yeah, I'll read over just a bit of that again because it was quick. So we have along the crooked, unpaved streets with their heaps of refuse and sloppy puddles, drunken roisterers staggered roaring. Steel glinted in the shadows where wolf preyed on wolf, and from the darkness rose the shrill laughter of women and the sounds of scuffings and strugg uh, yeah, strugglings. I think I read that, read that wrong the first time. doesn't matter. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll throw it to Tor, and then we'll get uh, Amaya's uh, opinion on that. Did anything stand out to you when I was reading that, um, that in that evocative sense that I mentioned before? You mean like anything from the rest? Um, just would, uh, go ahead. Uh, oh no, go ahead. I was uh, to to answer that question. Anything in particular uh, in 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 the context of what we're talking about with style, right? So we're talking about uh, the we, we focused a lot on sound because we just read a poem, but in this case, uh, the particular diction chosen and the figures of speech. Anything stand out to you there? And I can read it again if you need, if need be. Generally, um, it just, it, again, you know, I'm, I believe actually in these kind of, I actually got a sense of texture as well. So it generally, you know, it pretty much, it just painted the scene very well for me. If you could actually read it again. Yeah, I will. And I'll even, uh, I'll even send it. I should have done it to, to begin with, but that way you can read along with me. We have technology. Wait. Oh, no. No. Attachment. So for those of you who don't understand that there's a technical error going on, there's a slight technical error where I have to paste something into a different program to paste it into Discord. Boom. All right. Um, and I will read it again. Along the uh, crooked, unpaved streets with their heaps of refuse and sloppy puddles, drunken roisters staggered, roaring. Steel glinted in the shadows where wolf preyed on wolf, and from the darkness rose the shrill laughter of women and the sounds of scuffings and strugglings. There is a, there's a lot of emphasis on sound, which actually, you know, in terms of immersion, actually, you know, again, just I feel puts the reader almost kind of in the setting, you know, if, where you can kind of almost envision being there you know it, yeah. it it gives you the sense that this this section of you know whatever setting this is is it, it yeah is in is actually lived in is actually alive you know that people actually dwell in this part of you know whatever world this is 
Yeah, Amaya, um, do you do you see that as well? And if so, what do you think is causing that feeling? So <clears throat> we don't have full on onomatopoeias, right? But as this would, of course, um, be quite a bit like the the Jabberwocky poem, where a lot of words being used here, and there's a lot of mod uh, modifiers on the words. It's not it's not just unpaved streets or just crooked, un you know, uh, streets. It's crooked, unpaved, right? Heaps of refuse, sloppy puddles, drunken roisterers, staggered. You know, we have multiple words all coming together to give a, an extremely clear, crisp picture of what specifically we're talking about. Um, still glinting. Everything is sensory, generally speaking. To give you, to put you, as you say, like, in the scene where you can see it, you can smell it, you can hear it. And, sorry, I'm trying to remember where I was going with that. <laughs> um, I don't remember. Shoot. No, no, it's alright. Uh, if you do, just, like, shout Alex Jones style into the camera to interrupt me as I'm talking here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but th there's actually a lot here. Um, so, like the crooked, unpaved streets thing is actually way deeper than I think people give it credit for. Um, and it, it so crooked. Uh, this comes with a particular diction, right? Because I, I talked about all those elements that I listed before. If I scroll up on my notes, so in terms of diction, uh, crooked is a, a good word. Why is crooked a good word? Because it doesn't just mean not straight. It also kind of means evil or uh, malignant or uh, broken, or you see what I mean? There's a bunch of meanings in that one word. So that word is doing like triple lifting. Um, now, unpaved provides the tactile texture of the streets. There's a bunch of S sounds. Those are the amanomatopoeia kind of feeling things Amaya noticed. Well, then also we have heaps of refuse, right? Like it's not just trash. It's like this mouth, like, I don't know about you, but if like it's like you have garbage, but then if I say I have heaps of garbage, all of a sudden there's, um, I, I don't, I, I'm trying to figure out what it is about the word heap, right? It's like this mismatch. It's a mess of it. There's a bunch. It also rhymes off of streets, so there's like a play here, you know, along the crooked, unpaved streets with their heaps. Like it helps you move into refuse and sloppy puddles. But actually, as I, if I really think about it, I kind of want to vomit into my mouth a little bit when I think of like unpaved heaps of refuse and sloppy, uh, sloppy puddles. Like, that's yeah. disgusting. Like, what the, what the fuck is in these, what are these puddles? Like, um, and then they they're put it next just, to drunk. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. They're not just puddles. They're like the worst possible puddles imaginable. Well, they're sloppy yeah, like the drunks. Right. Go ahead, Tori. Yeah, I, I would say I almost imagine kind of like this refuse is like melting, almost kind of like producing this sludge. It's you know f forming these puddles that actually are not ne necessarily water, but kind of this ichor-like substance. Very uh, yeah. powerful imagery, let's just say. Yeah, and and then like because uh, I could go on and on about this, but like the because you know people get sloppy drunk too right so you have these sloppy puddles it's wedged between refuse and the drunkards and then the drunkards like they're uh drunken roisterers right um there's something about mm -hmm. like roister 
one, like you have to slow down to, to goddamn say the word in that sentence, which gives it this kind of big emphasis. And it reminds me of like a like a freaking rooster, right? So you've got this like giant cock sticking up um, in the middle of, <laughs> of the sentence um, to, to throw a play on words myself. And it's roaring, right? So you get this all of a sudden this blast of a volume um, at the end of the sentence. Uh, you know, the steel glinting. Also, I, I find, and yeah, any either of you guys just like again scream in as you go because I get I'll get carried away. Uh, but steel glinting in the shadows. So all of a sudden, uh, if the steel is active, this if for those of you who struggle with active and passive voice, here's something that um, you pay attention to stylistically. The steel is like animate, right? It's alive, and its eyes are opening, glinting, seeing you in the darkness. Um, where wolf preys on wolf, right? Like, again, now we have um, a metaphor. And that it, it, it's richer because it's predators killing each other in this freaking back unpaved alley where it's all full of basically like shit-filled puddles and everyone's celebrating in the death and the daggers themselves are alive and glinting and blinking and looking at you. Uh, and then and the women are laughing with these shrill high-pitched cackles like they're freaking witches, and uh, which is the use of like the shrill laughter of women and the sounds. And again, we get the alliteration, like shrill sounds, scufflings, strugglings. Um, the the uh, sorry, I'm, I'm 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 getting too excited. I apologize, friends. Okay. <laughs> we're we're allowed to get excited about literature over here. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if you guys have time, I'd like to to share. Uh, by the way, can you do you guys know where that uh, that little bit was from? I actually don't. I admittedly uh, do not either. Oh, good, because I've shared it too many times. I was embarrassed. It's it's from a story I bring up a lot. Um, it's from Tower of the Elephant, which is one of the Conan stories, and it's like the most. It's from the most famous paragraph from that story, which is the most famous story of the Conan stories. Because of it's so rich, like um, for your guys' uh, reading reading pleasure, I'll I'll go ahead and uh, paste that. But I'll I'll move on to a different a different one here to to read through because I think um, we've got we've got more fun literature to do the literary equivalent of weeb over. There's like the whole paragraph, and you if you if you guys are looking at it. Um, it, it it does that the whole time, so it's like you have twice as much content. Um, but what I will share with you guys, and I'll read it out here for the podcast, and I think I've read this on the podcast before as well, so I apologize, those of you who have had to listen to this over and over again. Uh, but it's worth it for this conversation. Um, there we go. So this one is from Blood Meridian. And... I'll read it out, and then you guys, you can you can kind of read it with me and tell tell me what you see in it that allows its effectiveness. Because this, when I first read it, it stuck in my mind and it never left. It never left. Um, so it's <clears throat> that night they rode through a region electric and wild, where strange shapes of soft blue fire ran over the metal of the horses trapping and the wagon wheels rolled in hoops of fire, and little shapes of pale blue light came to perch in the ears of the horses and in the beards of the men. 
So I'll, I'll start talking on that, and then you guys could please jump in. Uh, the one thing I want to point out is uh, this is, yeah, it's one sentence, it looks like, and this sentence is the wagon wheels going around. You can hear it if you listen, right? Um, particularly when you hit the, the point, so let's say, that night they rode through a region electric where, uh, and wild where strange shapes, here right there, where strange shapes of soft blue fire ran over the metal of the horse's trappings and the wagon wheels rolled. It doesn't stop, right? It There's a mm -hmm. kind of monotony and you kind of have to give yourself into it. Like if you try to force it to read like a normal sentence, you'll get all screwed up. It's like trying to read Lovecraft like a modern person would try to read. Like they can't, you can't do it. You have to you have to take the rhythm it wants you to take. But I think there's this kind of uh, looping effect that gets in there. And when you start to move with it, you can feel the, the, the wagon wheels going over the desert in the midnight with all these band of murderers and scalpers. Um, that's, that's what stuck out to me. There's a lot that sticks out to me. Um, either, either of you, anything about this that particularly stands out stylistically? I mean, it's a run-on sentence to actually indicate that you're running on, which is kind of fun. <laughs> I know Howard and Lovecraft were also friends in real life, weren't they? Surprisingly, yes, uh, because Lovecraft <laughs> hated Irishmen and Robert was an Irishman. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, actually, I'm noticing something here. We have wagon wheels rolled in hoops. We actually have three words all together that evoke the sense of roundness or wheels or circles that cannot have been by accident region no, electric sorry sorry go ahead no no that's awesome that you pointed it out because i actually have not noticed i've read this a million times that i haven't even uh must have not been reading very closely but that yeah that is actually awesome like the wheels rolled in hoops um it it evokes the, the the feeling of the rolling the monotony the mo the motion is in the it's in the damn prose right like uh it's, I, I was super cool i love this stuff man uh torin do you see anything in there or why do you have something more you want to say i you need we need to let a grip of talk up <laughs> oh <laughs> i was actually gonna say admittedly i actually had to uh read some of it several times just because it, it could admittedly it did kind of confuse literal minded me, but um, no, actually I can actually see where soft blue fire ran over the metal of the horse's uh, trappings. It took me a moment to, but I can actually see it kind of like where he's kind of evoking this gleaming of the uh, moonlight as they run. Yeah, well, actually, I think it's um. I know technically this doesn't exist, but like what people call heat lightning, like that, you know, but it, it flashes over the sky through the clouds. That was always my understanding because the region's electric and wild, right? Oh, um, so, okay. So, so they're talking literal what? there where it's actually storming. Well, well you sort guys of know both... about ball. Go ahead. Go ahead. You guys know about ball lightning, right? Maybe by I've heard of it. Explain it. Uh, that every so often I hear this is like an extremely rare phenomenon. Um, you can have lightning, which will strike, but it is, it's in the shape of a ball. And my husband talked about it actually back when he was alive. 
Um, and it kind of like floats down almost like a like a soap bubble. It can like roll across the floor. He said he actually came across a story where apparently one person said oh, one of these things bounced off a cat, like without electrocuting it, <laughs> which is you know quite interesting. But just uh, something to think about. And I don't know that could be kind of what's being evoked here because I, I have a sense also that he's he's getting into a little bit of um, like Saint Elmo's fire with uh, you know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And I was say that that's actually initially what came to mind before. Like, I, I, then I started, t- you know, interpreting it uh, symbolic. Where I'm like, oh, they're talking about moonlight. But the first time I read this, I actually thought it was like some supernatural effect where they were literally swimming through this like Saint Elmo's fire kind of effect. Well, I mean, you you could be. I think there's supposed to be that sense because um, that that stuff is eerie. I don't know if you've ever seen that either. Oh but, yeah, for sure. Um, and that's also what I think is, that's why he's saying the soft blue flyer ran over the metal of the horse's trappings and the wagon wheels right, rolled in hoops of fire. There is electricity. And again, the St. Elmo's fire that is caught in everything, which is also how I can perch in ears and on beards of men, et cetera. So it's, it's a, in that sense, I guess if you want to go with the St. Elmo's fire, we usually think of St. Elmo's fire, of course, in the context of ships, you know, because um, that's generally speaking, I think, where you end up hearing it being talked about. I don't think we end up hearing it getting talked about in any other context usually so, so it's interesting but, that you say because that's, that's probably where you're getting that sense from so saint elmo's fire is that when like because uh, that's what i uh would re- i've heard referred to as um maybe heat lightning um which i know is the wrong term for it where you've got like the in the sky it looks like it's like a branching out of Almost, it looks like lightning, like purple lightning that reaches out claw-like. Because I, I, or am I totally misunderstanding? Because it's the first time I've heard that uh, term I'm before. Gonna, I'm going to try to see if I can find a picture, um, which is going to be really difficult, of Saint Elmo's fire. I don't think anyone. This is one of those things that you really generally have to be there, um, where it's a it's a strange looking phenomenon. You get like a, the right kind of like static electricity in the atmosphere. Um, and the reason why you used to see this like for ships. Um, is way back in, in ye old sailing days. Um, you could occasionally, if you're out at sea and the conditions are just correct, get just a, a massive static build, static buildup in like the the um, the mass of the ship and the, the rigging and everything else. And so the the entire top of the ship, you know, um, in the the rigging and the sails and the mast would be just crackling with this strange green electricity, and it wouldn't kill you or anything. It's just there. It's almost like having an aurora borealis, but like on your ship. Um, and apparently, yeah. yes, it is green. So, yeah. um, I thought it was like yeah, almost kind of like it, it was like this almost kind of like hazy, uh, um, I guess like mist. Like it's not actually necessarily ele- electricity and like uh, it's not like arcs of lightning, is it? Right, right, right. It's it's more like a, it's it's like a, a glow. But I yeah, it, and I'm looking for pictures on the internet, and the internet's like, no one has photos of this. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's really well, annoying. What a- what I am finding photos of does look like what here in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, people called heat lightning, which seems to be the St. Elmo's fire. That That's what I interpreted. Um, that was, you know, shining, like, because cause that stuff hangs in the air for a lot longer than, like, a lightning strike does. Because uh, I remember I saw it when I was a kid. And, yeah, that, that effect is the region electric. But um, to jump back into style, uh, that that was a fun fun excursion learning about St. Elmo's uh, fire. Uh, for those of you who 
like to learn. You're learning things here on the Wild Owl podcast. Um, yeah, but the the fact that the region's electric also means it's kind of like alive, right? Because like if you you can use that word to describe things as being tense, um, and it's tense because it's wild where strange shapes, right? So like there there are things that you don't recognize. It's kind of like evoking the fear of the unknown. Um, let's see. Yeah, there's there's a depth to the feeling, if you will, um, that I think gets evoked by the particular choices of words used. And I think small things like that make a huge, huge difference. Um, and I, the reason why I'm calling attention to it is that I, I, I'm really actually just trying to convince people out there who might be listening that, yeah, like picking the right word can take a sentence from a kind of discursive, boring thing where the reader kind of doesn't really feel like you care to packing it so full of meaning, right, that you get this massive, profound, evocative effect is really what I, I, I wanted to to push out there. There's another um, much, much shorter um, McCarthy quote um, that I will go ahead and share. This one is um, I, I want to talk about because of the issue with abstraction. Uh, this is something I don't hear people talk about very much at all. Um, there we go. This one's from The Road, um, and it's a description of something that the, uh, the protagonist, well, there's a co-protagonist, the father and son. The father sees this in a dream, um, but it's rather profound, um, and it is crouching there, pale and naked and translucent, its alabaster bones cast up in shadow on the rocks behind it, its bowels, its beating heart. And what I want to call attention to here is is the, the lack of abstracts. There are, I think, essentially none. I don't think anything in this is abstract at all. I think it's all concrete. And this is something I think people might get confused about, but when you're writing fiction, I actually think that concretes are almost, not always, but almost always more evocative than um, abstractions are going to be. And uh, just to, to quickly go over this, because I don't want to stretch it on too long. So crouching is a thing that animals do, right? So right away, that's a physical action that can be imagined pale, right? So that's something you can see. There's a visual naked. Um, that not only has a visual element to tell you that it's uncovered, but it it uh, is a tactile element as well, right? Because it, if it's naked, it's not going to be furry. It's probably not going to be, it might be soft, but if it's soft, it's going to be soft in that kind of skinny, clammy kind of way, and it's translucent, so you can see through it. Now, all of a sudden, it's membranous, pale, naked, and translucent, right? It almost has going to have like a stickiness to it, like it, you might, uh, either your fingers will stick or they would tear through if you touched it. Um, it's alabaster bones, right? So we have the bones and the color of the bones that we're seeing through this pale, translucent skin, white, and cast, right? Cast is uh, is an action, like you cast a fishing rod. It's the shadows are thrown upon the rocks. So the shadow is a physical thing you can see. There's a physical action of the, the shadow being tossed, hitting another physical object, the rock behind it, um, being the direct location. And then, then the next things aren't even sentences, right? You just, what you see, it's bowels, it's beating heart. Um, it's all very visceral uh, to, to use a, a proper word um, for that. 
why am I bringing all that up? Um, you know, uh, Torin, what do you think? What do you, what do you think? Do you think that, uh, like how much of a difference do you notice when it's all concrete as opposed to, let's say something where there might be a mixture of abstractions in there? Admittedly, when it's all concrete, it kind of, it does bring in like a more definite picture, you know, whereas if there's abstractions there, it, it actually does kind of, it, it leaves a lot of, uh, room to, I guess, speculate, you know, on behalf of the reader, you know, and in ways I think that actually, that makes it more interesting, not only because it, you know, it gets them more involved, you know, in, in reading the lines as well. Yeah, my anything to say on the the use of concretes there? Well, I think definitely the concretes help place you, you know, directly. Then I would agree that generally speaking, concrete is always going to end up having more impact than abstract. In the same way that like abstract has a difficult time hitting in general. That's why you kind of want uh, a concrete conflict. You want concrete stakes. You want concrete settings. You know. Yeah. Uh, this is something. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, this is something that I think people don't realize because they don't think they. I think a lot of listeners, if you don't know this, what an abstraction is. An abstraction is a essentially generalization of categorization, right? So. It is a moving away from that is which is toward, um, let's say, increasingly broader pictures, broader shadows, right? Um, so the more times that we we make reference to abstracts, the more vague, by definition, we are being, which means we're not being specific. And the thing is, it's it's sort of like you know you see the commercials like the starving kids in Africa, right? Like they'll show you one mm -hmm. starving kid. They could show you a picture of like. A hundred thousand, but you wouldn't care because mm -hmm. that's not how our emotions work, right? We we invest stakes in a particular, not in an abstract, not in something that isn't real. Um, so, yeah, definitely the 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 concretes are going to be necessarily more evocative for that same exact reason. I actually have, um, and I think this will probably be the last one, just for the sake of time. I don't want to drag you guys on too long. Uh, an example of something where a lot of abstractions are interspersed. Now, I think this is done successfully. Um, this is by Algernon Blackwood. Uh, if you recognize it from Lovecraft, it's because he puts it at the beginning of Call of Cthulhu. He quotes uh, Algernon. Um, but it is, the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents we live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. Um, you can see there lots of actual abstractions. Like, you don't, like, correlate. Like, correlations don't exist in physical space or in exist in physical action. Um, contents is kind of general and vague. The human mind is even something that's kind of ethereal. Um, you know, mer or even mercy, like the most merciful thing, um, is mercy is a bit of an abstraction. It's a category of action, but it's not an action itself, a placid island of ignorance. Island is kind of concrete, but it's surrounded by things that 
pull it away from its concreteness. Same thing with black seas is con concrete, but we we make it less physical by attaching infinity to it, right? So black seas of infinity. Um, now, I actually think this particular section works. Um, Amaya, do you think this particular quote works? And if so, what do you think makes it makes it still have an evocative effect despite the fact that we've we're moving away from um, the concrete words? Well, <clears throat> I might say that we actually still have concrete words. They're just being used in a more abstract sense. Like we're not literally on a placid island. We're not literally in the midst of actual Black Seas. Um, and that might help because, and this is usually how you kind of have to use this kind of language. You know, you could just say infinity, which is about as abstract as we could probably imagine anything being. Uh, and people find ways of um, anchoring them using stuff like a black sea. In this case, of course, evoking that sense of, you know, a, a dark sea that you can't see the bottom of it. You can't see the edge of it. You don't know what's in there. You know, it's fairly frightening and, uh, you know, full of chaos. So that's probably how he's able um, to keep. I mean, and actually, he's very consistent. We have an island, a sea, and voyaging. So that's the other thing that maybe also helps is he he's very consistent with the sort of imagery um, that he's trying to evoke throughout the entire uh, sentence, the second sentence there. So we do have the yeah. concretes, and that was I, I can't believe I haven't noticed that either. I'm not as clever as I thought it was. But yeah, you've got a consistency of concretes that tie together the abstractions. The abstractions are embedded in, uh, or rather embedded, they are figurative in nature, right, rather than being discursive in nature. And that probably helps quite a lot. Um, anything, uh, Torin, that you might notice is in there? Uh, one thing I noticed, actually, is that it seems like at least like the way that this impacted me the most is that I just noticed that kind of like, you know, he paints this picture yet. I don't actually visualize anything in this case. You know, it, it's purely, I guess the, I suppose just feelings that are evoked from, you know, just the, I'm trying to think of the, uh, I momentarily lost the right word. Give me one sec. The, uh, I guess the, the context of, you know, just being stranded on an you know island in the midst of a, a sea is obviously this very hopeless feeling, you know, and I just feel that, you know, just kind of the uh, abstract kind of um, thought of just that feeling you know, alone, he kind of was able to instill in this, you know, these lines and it, I very easily can pick, you know, pick up on it without actually seeing anything or, you know, just, picturing anything as I usually do. Yeah, what I think is happening here is the goal uh, for Algernon um, is to make one feel out of place in the world, right? This is kind of like an existential dread or existential angst um, evoking feeling. Um, and so I think the the constant pulling toward abstraction takes one out of the world which makes one feel lost and thrown and stranded and ignorant. And um, I think that's part of the reason why um, it was actually a good idea to, you know, we've got this very clean um, set of concrete 
metaphors basically um, to fluff those up with all of the abstractions because yeah, it does give you that feeling. It's not meant to paint an image. It's made to make you feel uh, perhaps despair upon looking on the vastness of space, which is, fits pretty well, uh, you know, for the beginning of Call of Cthulhu uh, and Lovecraft in general. Um, why bring any of that up? But I'm guessing when I'm going to wrap things up here. We've been chatting on uh, for a while. Is I wanted to demonstrate that actually, um, like we we've showed. It's content and composition kind of go together. Um, I wanted to to give examples where we could show how you can evoke these feelings. You can get people invested. You could activate the sensory information. You could do that with the content of the individual words. So like at the level of the diction, um, you could do that at the sounds of the words as they combine together. You can do that with the sentence structure, right? We noticed the um, with. Cormac McCarthy and the wagon wheels, that being a run-on sentence rolling with three three rolling sounding words, right? Um, you can do all this if you if you focus on your prose and you have an idea that you aren't just saying a thing. There is there is a how as al alongside the what. Um, and I hope that you listeners enjoyed reading along with us. Um, and I, I appreciate you showing up. But before we go, um, Make sure you check out our guest work. I won't make us run all the way back through it, but uh, check out Dracula's Guest and Dracula's Match uh, by Amaya Tenshi. I'll leave links for both of those. Um, also, keep an eye out for uh, Grippa's work. Um, if if he so chooses, I'll link his uh, something for, for, for him. Do you have anything that you want to send people toward, Torin, at all? Unfortunately not. My uh, mind's profile is dead at the moment. Hopefully that'll okay. change in the future. All right. Well, in the yeah, in the future, we'll definitely shill as much of your stuff as possible. Uh, but yeah, keep a lookout because I might get the third book, Dracula's Death, coming out. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed having you guys on the podcast. Anything you guys want to say before we uh, depart for the day? Help support uh, authors and artists. Go to your Kickstarter, I guess. Definitely uh, go to the Kickstarter. Yeah, that's where you can help Torin. Uh, and I'm not kidding. You can help. <laughs> uh, you can you can put. We can make. Uh, we can promote Agrippa's uh, professional work by going to my Kickstarter campaign, which you can access at wildlit.com. It's a gigantic <laughs> button right down at the bottom of the page. Uh, please click on it. Please support. Um, I don't know if I ran over the rewards at the beginning. You get a shout out if, if we if we reach our goals, which we got about a little tiny bit less than a month to reach. So we we still have some time. If we reach our goal, um, you can get uh, a shout out in a video. If you for like a dollar, for like five dollars, you get in the backer list. So all of the books. I'm going to be publishing like six books using this money. Um, so if you do that, you can have your name in six books for five bucks that's pretty cheap um and of course there's bigger and better rewards as you as you go so just check that out again at wildiolit.com i won't ramble on uh thank you guys for joining us make your pros uh you know put style in it i can't think anymore see you guys next time <laughs> all right thank you for hosting that was fun